listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. That was Psalm 13, by the way, just put to music if you didn't know that. It was beautiful. All right, good morning. Glad you're here. Let's go. Let's get to it. Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it up and follow along with us. If you don't, I welcome you to use the Bible that's in the rack and the chair in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to keep that one as your own. In particular, Mark chapter 14 is, is on page 850. If you're not used to looking up passages of the Bible, you can just go straight to that, that page and, and we'll work through the first 11 verses. Well, usually on the first Sunday of the month, we, um, we receive communion together as a congregation But we are pushing that back to next week because next week, in the text that we'll, as we're working our way through Mark, next week is is about the Lord's Supper. The first, the first, uh, the first time that when on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered the Last Supper, and so that'll give us an opportunity to preach specifically about why, from the scriptures, we that is so important to us as Christians to remember. Jesus' sacrifice and what that meal was pointing to and what it has pointed to for the past 2,000 years. So we'll, we'll go through that. But this week we're going to look at uh, a beautiful story of, of where this woman anoints Jesus, really his whole body, from his head down to his feet with this very costly perfume. And I think that today is really just one of those Sundays and one of those passages where, where we need to, to see something more than we need to do something because I think the doing of the Christian life flows from the seeing, right? And so there are times when, when there's a lot of application and things imperatives in the scriptures where clearly we need to do this or don't do that, but all of that flows from seeing Jesus rightly. And so that really that's the point today is that this woman that we'll read about here in just a moment saw Jesus rightly and worship flowed from that. So um, in just a second, I'm going to pray and then we'll, we'll work our way through it. And then I have really just three sort of statements that I think just summarize this passage for us. As I pray, one thing I want to pray about is uh, school starting this week for a lot of kids Oh, wasn't that just a dreadful time of year when you were a kid? You're like, oh, that pit in your stomach. Um, so let's pray for our kids that are starting school. Pray for our teachers, public school teachers. I am the son of two public school teachers, and um, I'm just very thankful. In fact, this morning I read an article in the newspaper, actually on the internet, where the newspaper's on the internet. D- does anybody actually still get the newspaper in their mailbox anymore? I don't, maybe you do. Oh, you do? Okay. Sorry, Miss Marty. <laughs> there is something about popping that thing open and folding it back, you know. I, I get that. There's, there's something good about that. But it was a story about a young girl who was in a very disadvantaged situation, and her teacher had a tremendous impact on her in the third grade. And in that article, it mentioned a seventh grade teacher, Justin Finney, who's a member of Crosspoint. He's no longer a seventh grade teacher. He's gone on to be a principal. But it mentioned him as having a tremendous impact on our life. And so if you're a public school teacher and you're gearing up for uh, school, now thank you. You are in a prime position to display God's goodness to an onlooking world. So let's pray for our, our teachers. And also just know just the regular rhythm of life out at this crazy little thing we like to call Fort Benning. Um, I don't know if you noticed, we're next to, maybe next to the most important army installation maybe in the country. I'm just going to go ahead and say it, the most important military uh, installation in the country <laughs> for all you army, or all you Air Force, Navy people out there. And this is a time when a lot of young soldiers are getting stationed here for training. I just bumped into one this morning and his, his wife coming here. Uh, this this past week I had an opportunity to go out and eat in the with a, a Adam Johnson who's a um, a ranger here at the church, and he took me out to eat at the ranger mess facility this week. And oh man, I mean, I was just, I couldn't, I could barely contain myself. It was so awesome. <laughs> uh, but it's just a reminder of boy, the God's grace to us, 
If you're in the military, thank you. There's people from this church that are deployed. Um, uh, uh, a civilian reservist from our church just deployed this last week. He asked me not to mention his name. He's very private, doesn't want public adulation, but he's in Afghanistan in the middle of it, operating on um, soldiers and people that get banged up pretty bad in war. So as we pray for our text, let's pray. Let's pray for our teachers and our military and ask the Lord to help us see Jesus today. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your, your kindness to us. Thank you for this beautiful word and this passage that we come now to, to not so much as examine, but let it examine us. May we not judge your, your word, but let your word judge us, Father. And as Reynolds read for us this morning, that we are to contend for the faith that was handed down through the centuries. Lord, we know that we're not, we're not standing here in a vacuum. We are standing on the shoulders of giants, men and women who died, who persevered, who crossed oceans and mountains and valleys to take the gospel to faraway lands and to preserve your word. Lord, we, we are humbled by the fact that by your grace to us, you have superintended and preserved this word that we can now open and see Jesus. Lord, may you rouse us from our, from our slumber. And may we see Jesus today. Lord, I thank you for the kids in this congregation, the, the many children in the hallway behind us as they go back to school. Lord, I pray that they would have joy in their hearts and that they would learn and that they would be witnesses for Jesus in their classrooms. And Lord, I thank you for the teachers in this congregation. I pray that you'd give them energy and wisdom and boldness and compassion as they are on the front lines of dealing with a lost culture. I pray for our soldiers, God, that you would, that you would surround them, that you would protect them, the ones from our church that are deployed even now and their families staying behind. God, give them grace. Let them return home quickly. Be with our president and our Congress and our military leaders and give them wisdom to lead this nation and to execute these wars and to end them quickly, to bring soldiers home and let there be doors open for the gospel in Afghanistan and Iraq. And now, Lord, as we, as we dive into this text, God, I pray that this would not just be another Sunday in the South where we check off a sermon and we go be rude to a waitress and then take a nap. But Lord, do more this morning. Lord, I pray that today we would not just add another rock to our backpack of things that we ought to do to be good kids, but that we would see Jesus and all of his beauty and all of her surpassing worth as this woman in this story did and let it produce in us worship. And Lord, if there is, and I'm sure there are, anyone in this room that is not yet trusting and seeing and believing and loving Jesus. Lord, their only hope is you and your grace and your life-giving power. Would you give them a heart to believe, eyes to see and ears to hear the beautiful news about Jesus? And I pray that you do these things for the glory of your name for the good of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life, a summary of the events. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Okay, so let's stop there and let's, let's kind of calibrate ourselves. Things have really reached an apex here, a climax of the tension between these religious elite, the scribes mentioned here and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin. Remember, we've dealt through... We've gone through several chapters where Jesus has been in conflict with these religious authorities. 
And now we're at this apex where they are openly plotting to, to kill him. And I think it's noteworthy, really. In fact, I think these two verses are packed with irony. It mentions that it was just two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So in case you are not real familiar with the Old Testament, that's referring back to the book of Exodus, specifically in Exodus chapter 12, where at that time in the story of God's redemptive plan with his people, he is dealing with a specific nation in the Old Testament, Israel, through whom he wants to gather as his people, not because he doesn't love everybody else, but because through this people, Israel, he's intending to love all of the nations of the earth. And the way he's doing that is by gathering this people together, making them holy, and using them as a display to the nations. And at this particular point in the history of the Bible, God's people Israel find themselves in Egyptian captivity. They are slaves in Egypt. And God raises up a redeemer, a rescuer, a deliverer, Moses, and he tells this unlikely candidate who can't even speak in front of people, go and and be the means and the leader by which I rescue my people from Israel and speak to Pharaoh. And so you, are, I'm sure, are somewhat familiar with the plagues and God is, is bringing sort of punishment and means to, to pry Pharaoh's hands loose so that he will let his people go. And in Exodus chapter 12, we're at the end of that where God is really beaten down on Pharaoh, sending these plagues and this, this final plague where God tells Moses to tell the people, to get a spotless, unblemished lamb and to sacrifice that lamb and to take some of the blood from that lamb and put it on the doorposts of your house and then to eat the rest of that, uh, that lamb. Because that night, God says, I will come, my angel will come over every household in Egypt and every household that does not have the blood on the doorpost, I will strike dead the firstborn son of every household. But God is saying, when I see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of your door, I will pass over. That's where we get the word Passover from. I will pass over your house and spare you. Now, friends, God didn't need the blood because he couldn't see inside the house and he was really wondering which were his people. It's it's more a sign not so much for God so he knows who to spare, but for the people to point forward to this ultimate sacrifice, Jesus, the true unblemished lamb on the cross where he would finally and fully die and his blood would would cover us so that God's judgment would pass over us. And so that's what Passover is. And then, and then later on through the Old Testament, in fact, in that very chapter, Exodus 12, God says that this Passover night, then after that, once you are free from Egypt, I want you to observe this, this feast of unleavened bread. And what that is, is he's saying that after this happens, when you get up in the morning and Pharaoh realizes that I am God and that I am serious about what I've commanded him to do, I want you to not wait for the bread to rise. I want you to gather everything, and I want you to follow Moses, and I want you to go. And so what he's saying there is that remember this time when I told you to hurry up, pick up your stuff, and go. Don't wait for the bread to rise. Go. And so he's telling them to do this feast of unleavened bread Because he's wanting them to remember that day when he told them, get your stuff and go. Don't wait for the dough to rise, for the bread to rise. Go. And so then in the history of God's people, the Passover this night and the subsequent feast to be a sort of object lesson to help them remember God's deliverance and God's rescue is what God commanded his people to do through the centuries. And now, even now, this is the week. And here's the irony, friends. This is full of irony, is the very week that the people are remembering God's rescue, which actually was meant to point forward to Jesus' ultimate rescue, is the very week that the men who were tasked with understanding the law were completely missing, as they observed the feast, were completely missing the very thing that the feast was pointing towards, which was Jesus. 
So that should, friends, that should cause us some humility. The priests and scribes were very familiar with the Old Testament, with the prophecies, and they were very familiar with Jesus' words where he, for the past few chapters, has been speaking about his death. And then he will die and rise again. And even men that were tasked with understanding and knowing the Bible and teaching others missed the whole point of the Bible. I, I just think that that should cause us to be a, a little bit humble when we read the Bible. I, I think there is a way of, of reading the Bible and knowing the Bible, but absolutely missing the gospel, the good news, the Christ that it points to. And that's exactly what's happening here. So verse 3, let's keep going. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. That word nard basically is just a sort of perfume-like ointment. Pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Okay, let's stop there and do do a little bit of work. This story is also recounted in uh, John's gospel, in John chapter 12. And John gives a little bit more details. He gives a a few more facts. The people that are gathered here and this woman are specifically Mary, not Jesus' mother Mary. But remember Mary and Martha, the two sisters? And they had a brother, Lazarus. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And so this falls right after that chapter, John chapter 11, that recounts Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So you remember in John chapter 11, Mary and Martha come to Jesus. They send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is dead. Or they, they send word that their brother Lazarus is sick. And Jesus sort of takes his own sweet time, you know. And then in the meantime, while Jesus seems to be sort of stalling or not urgently responding to their request to come, Lazarus dies And, of course, this upsets Mary and Martha, and by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, Lazarus is dead, and Mary and Martha are upset at him, saying, Jesus, if you would have only been here, you could have prevented this, which is a sort of strange little combination of actually faith, actually confessing that Jesus could do something, but kind of frustrated with him that he wasn't there on time to do it. I I kind of love that sort of complexity of of human sort of tension there. And and then there's that one verse that says, I I like it in the King James, just to prove to us that Lazarus was dead, it says that he stinketh, right? But Jesus is not bound by death, and so he utters words, and the power of his words is the life-giving power to cause Lazarus to get up from the grave. And so then the next chapter is John chapter 12, which in John's account of the gospel is where we are in Mark chapter 14, and it says that these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and the newly raised Lazarus, are throwing a dinner party, I would assume an appreciation of Jesus raising him from the dead. Can you imagine that party, like the gratitude there? Like, hey man, I just, you know, I, I mean, I've given people like Cokes and you know, like Twinkies for helping me do yard work. Can you imagine throwing a banquet for somebody who didn't just help you? We're not talking about buying pizza when somebody helps you pack up the U-Haul. This is a dinner banquet because Jesus brought their brother back from the dead. I mean, that's a party. And so that's who's involved in this. Simon the leper, we don't know who he is. That's the only time he appears in scriptures. Maybe he is their dad, or maybe he's just a guy that Jesus healed that happened to have a house that could host this most wonderful of dinner celebrations. And this lady comes, and she is married. John identifies her specifically in his account as Mary, and she breaks this, this flask on Jesus. Now, there's something here that I, I really think is important for us to miss, and this is why it's important to read the Bible slowly and 
and over and over again when you're reading through passages like this. There's just this beautiful little thing in here about that we see this picture of Jesus interacting with, with women in general in the Gospel of Mark. This was a huge, a huge breach of etiquette in Jewish culture for a woman to interrupt a dinner party where the men are reclining at table and for her to interrupt that unless she was serving food. And she interrupts that dinner party and does, does something that, you know, will, will kind of hit the pause button between the salad and the main course. And she anoints Jesus with oil. Jesus' interaction, there's, some, there's a thread that we see through Mark. Jesus' interaction with and commendation of women as examples of faith in Mark is revolutionary and remarkable. Just a few examples. Mark chapter 5. The woman, remember the woman hemorrhaging blood, is sandwiched in between this account to be an example of faith to Jairus when Jesus was on the way to raise his daughter. And it seems sort of awkwardly in between this account where Jesus interacts with this Jairus on the way to his house, Mark inserts this story about this woman who's hemorrhaging blood to be an example of faith to Jairus and to readers. In Mark chapter 7, we see another little sandwich where there is this Syrophoenician Gentile woman pleading for her daughter to be healed, and Jesus commends her as having great faith. And here in Mark chapter 14, we see Jesus, which we'll read about just in a second, not just allowing her to do this, but commending her faith and saying that what she has done is a beautiful thing, and wherever the gospel is preached, all through the ages, she will be told of the thing that she has done. Friends, this, this may not sort of be sensitive to us as 21st century readers, but in first century Palestine and Jewish culture, this was revolutionary. This was scandalous. This was etiquette-smashing interaction between Jesus and a woman. Do not buy the lie from our liberal culture that says that Christianity wants to push women down. Certainly, maybe in some circles of the church because they misunderstand the, the complementary roles between men and women. That might be the way they do it. But friends know that a true reading of the gospel, a true reading of the Bible always exalts biblical femininity so that it will flourish. And Jesus, Jesus is, is commending women. The gospel always does that. Contrast this with, with uh, even our cultures. And this is just a, it's like a wicked twist. Contrast that with our culture's objectification of women in the name of progressiveness and li liberty. Right? So, so the, like the feminist movement or the women's live movement, it, it will present a woman's worth as based solely on whether or not she can earn as much money or as a man, or really actually more sinister, as to how she looks. And so the, so the very same liberal culture that decries a bad character of how Christianity and the gospel treats women also puts skinny little teenagers on the cover of magazine and completely objectifies women. Friends, know that our culture isn't for the liberation of women. Our culture is for the destruction of women. I mean, you see it even in... in I'm going to get some emails for, for this one. My email is robert at insidecrosspoint.com. I, I think we even see it like in the way a group of young girls pose for pictures. You know, there's just like the stance. I mean, I'm not being silly. There's the, there's the stance, you know, where you just have to kind of make your figure and does everything look as complimentary as possible? And friends, that is a result of the object, the sexual objectification of women in our culture. And I, 
I, I mean, I want to tread lightly here because I, I, I know that oftentimes it's not a conscious decision. Little girls that are doing sort of the Facebook stance, it's not, they're not thinking that consciously. But do you see how our little girls and women are growing up in a culture that says, you better look pretty in that picture. You better look pretty in that picture. Otherwise, you're not truly valuable. Friends, that is evil. That is so evil. And and listen, I understand, man. It it is women reacting to the sinful male dominance. Sisters, listen to me. Your looks do not define you. Your ability to attract men does not define you define you. What size you are does not define you. Whether you exercise today or whether you stayed under a calorie count or whether or not you could put a picture of what you eat on Facebook proudly does not define you. Whether or not you get invited to the dinner club of the cool moms does not define you. Whether your kids are involved in all the right activities or dressed to a T every time you go out does not define you. Whether your baby sleeps through the night does not define you. Whether you lose your baby fat within the first month and can fit into some stupid pair of jeans does not define you. In fact, your ability to bear children does not define you. Friends, Jesus is the one, the only one, the revolutionary one who looks at a woman and gives her worth. And don't buy this cultural lie that submitting to a godly man is somehow less than. Listen to this. When you are submitting in a biblical, God-honoring way to a righteous man, you are actually modeling the role that Jesus plays in the Trinity. Let me prove it to you scripturally. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's a little off script, but uh, I'm sensing this might be helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. So follow the logic there. It's saying that the head of every man, all people, of course, is is God. It's, It's Christ. And a wife, her head is her husband. Not every man out there, but godly, a godly man who's submitting. And when she's doing that, she's like Jesus, whose head is God the Father. So don't, don't be duped into this sinful caricature that submitting to a godly man is somehow less than. You are never more like Jesus than when you were submitting. And, and, and if being like Jesus is less than in the eyes of this culture, so be it. There's nothing more valuable or more honoring that can be said than when we are most like Jesus. And when we are fulfilling the roles that God gives us as men and women, we are most like Jesus. More on this topic, I could go longer. I would commend you to two weeks ago on Wednesday night when Wayne preached on the complementary roles, taught on complementary roles between men and women. It was excellent. You can find that on our website. End of detour. Back to the text. Verse 4. So she's broken this alabaster flask on Jesus, poured it all over his head. John tells us that she wiped it all the way down to his feet and even used her hair to anoint his body with it. And there were some, verse 4, who said to themselves indignantly, indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. So a denarii was one day's wage. So 300 would be almost a year's wages or a year's salary. It may have been even like a savings account for this family. And she breaks it. And we know from John's account that the one who he records as having said this is Judas himself, who we'll read about in just a second, betrays 
And then right after that, verse 5, end of verse 5, it says that they scolded her. And a couple writers on this noted, as I was reading and preparing this week, that the, the original language, maybe a more literal translation that would say that word scolded, that they were so mad at her that their nostrils flared. Like, you know, you ever just been like, you know, and you just, there's veins popping out and your, your nostrils are flaring at somebody? Isn't that interesting how angry we can get at other people's devotion to Jesus? Why is that? Isn't it maybe just something about making us insecure? Isn't that weird how we can be critical of other people as they pursue Jesus? Verse 7, verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So a couple of things here before we end this passage and look at three things that I think is a progression of what this is about is that notice that what Judas and these other disciples called a waste, Jesus calls a beautiful thing. Notice also in verse 7, where Jesus says that the poor you will have with you always. Whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, is he saying that caring for the poor and social justice is not a good thing to do? No, he's saying actually it's, it's a wonderful thing. If we read the whole Bible, we, it's a wonderful thing. But notice that Jesus unlike any other religious leader, is not afraid to put himself forward as the thing that we should be most concerned about. The thing that we should prioritize. That's what separates Jesus from any other religious leader. Look at any other religion, and the the leader of that religion is always deferring, sort of calling for a sort of humility and deferring. But Jesus doesn't do that. He puts himself forward because he's God, because he knows that the best thing for people is to see him for who he truly is and worship him. And when we do that rightly, from that flows everything in life. And so Jesus is not saying that we shouldn't care for the poor, but he's saying that we shouldn't reverse the order of our life. It is beholding and believing in Jesus, and from that flows all of our good works. And he says in verse 9 that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, the gospel is the good news of Jesus. It is the story of the Bible. It is the message of what God has done in Christ to reconcile a people to himself. So we have this beautiful picture through the Bible of the Trinity, our triune God working salvation. So we have God who plans the salvation of his people. We have Jesus, God the Son, who accomplishes the salvation of his people on the cross, bearing the sin for his people, removing it like that Passover lamb, removing it and rising again in victory over death, sin, and all of its consequences, and now commanding whosoever will to turn and trust them in Jesus. And then we have the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, coming and opening up eyes and giving new hearts so that God's people can turn from their sin and trust in Jesus and choose to love him more than this world. And Jesus says that this gospel, that good news, is what is to be proclaimed in all of the world. And then we see this remarkable contrast and this really haunting end to this passage. Verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Okay, so I want to give you three thoughts that are not so much statements as I think just a progression of what this text is about. But before I do that, let me just say that I think that there is a really wrong way to apply this text. There's a wrong way to think about this. And oftentimes people fall into this sort of moralism when they come to the Bible. This text is not telling us 
that we should be more like Mary in contrast to Judas. Right? It's not primary, primarily saying to us that Mary was willing to give all that she had to Jesus while Judas was a greedy jerk and sold out Jesus for a few bucks. So, boys and girls, before you run off and get your sucker for the end of the day or go to the treasure box, be more like Mary and don't be like Judas. But isn't that kind of, we slip into morality so often. That is not the point of this text. Yes, there's action that springs from this. There's imperative in the gospel. But I think the point of this text is that we need to see Jesus as the all-surpassing, beautiful object of our worship. And when we rightly see him like Mary did, everything flows from that. So three, three statements. Number one, I'm getting ahead of myself. I just said what I just, I'm about to tell you. <laughs> Seeing Jesus rightly causes worship. There's three groups of people in this text. The chief priests and scribes who were tasked with understanding the scriptures, but they missed him. There's Judas who walked with Jesus for three years and saw him do innumerable miracles, and he missed it. And we have this unlikely candidate, this woman, who in first century Jewish culture would not be standard for putting forth it as an, as an example. This unlikely candidate who sees Jesus for who he truly, truly is, and she doesn't I don't think God expects us to see him in a vacuum. She sees Jesus because remember what Jesus did for her brother in John chapter 11. She has seen, she has beheld, she has experienced, she has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And she got a glimpse of the beautiful all-surpassing worth of Jesus and it caused her to do something that in the eyes of an onlooking culture was ridiculous. She gave away her savings because she saw Jesus rightly and it caused worship. Which leads us to progressive thought from this text number two. I don't even know what to call these things. Sentence number two. Worship lest we think that it's just the first part of the service or music on the radio station. No, worship, I'm not talking just about music. Worship is a total being response to the object we love most. So everybody worships, man. Everybody worships. We were made to worship. That is the most fundamental thing about us. We were made in God's image to worship him. And the fall, Genesis 3, corrupted everything, but it didn't corrupt our ability to worship. So, so, so sure, the world is not full of God worshipers, but it is full of worshipers. It, we worship looks. We worship money. We worship power. We, we worship sex. We worship all manner of things. And we look sort of down the end of our nose at cultures that would worship like a golden calf or whatever, you know. And kind of like, ha <laughs> primitive culture. I actually, at least they had something. You know what I mean? Like ours is just sort of intangible stuff that you can't even grab a hold of. Our idols are even, they're like smoke. I mean, at least they had a wooden statue. But anyway, I digress. The point is, is that we are all worshipers. And worship is something that every human being does. And it is our total being. It is our head. It is our heart. It is our hands. It is everything. And we see this picture of Mary's response that flowed from her seeing Jesus rightly. It was a consequence of her seeing Jesus rightly. She beheld and then she became a worshiper. That's a, that's a very important order. In fact, we see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In fact, I'm flipping all over. Guys in the back, if you can pull up 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. I, I want us to see this. 
we're, we're landing this plane, so don't, don't, don't get antsy. We're landing it here. Just bear with me for a second. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. In other words, seeing God, seeing Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So notice the important order of this text. It doesn't say, it doesn't say, transform yourself, and then maybe if you do a good job of transforming yourself, you will see Jesus. Friends, that's not the gospel, that's religion, and it kills. Because who among us can transform ourselves? None of us. Maybe we can give a good run at it, grit our teeth, and give it a good six months, but we're all going to flame out and burn if we don't see Jesus. No, the text says, don't do something first. It says, see something first, which is Jesus, and from that seeing, you will do something. So the order is, beholding we become. Seeing Jesus, and Mary beheld, whereas the scribes, and whereas Judas did not see, they, as, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, seeing, they didn't see. And Jesus here, this woman, is an example of worship being a total response to the object we most love. Which then I end with this, point three. This is what I, I want us to see. This is, this is what this passage is all about. In fact, this is, I think, is what the Christian life is all about. This is why we are here. This is why we exist. Jesus is the most worthy and beautiful object of worship that exists. In fact, he is the only truly worthy and beautiful object of worship that exists. And, and listen, there are times for us to think about application and to think about things that because of the gospel that we should do, imperatives that flow from the great truth of the gospel. And and that is a worthy thing that we spend a lot of time doing. But today, I think this text calls us to see. I, I want us to see because I see this beautiful truth in the scriptures that if we will see Jesus for who he truly is, not a moral, ethical teacher who wants to make your life miserable and not let you do the fun things, not a religious legalist, not a a soft, you know, teacher with his hair pulled back in a ponytail, just, just ushering proverbs. No, a Jesus who is, is, is kind and, and strong, right? Remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at that Jonathan Edwards sermon about the, the, the convergence of excellencies and the person of Jesus Christ. He's the meekest person in the world, but he's the strongest, right? He's the most gracious, but he's the most full of truth. There's this this beautiful convergence of excellencies that exist in Jesus that make him so otherworldly, so beautiful, and so powerful that if we can just see him, like if, 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 if the window pane of our heart can just be cleared off of the mud of this culture, if we can just see Jesus, he's so beautiful and he's so powerful that when we see him, we will, we will flow in worship from that, from that view. Do you see that? Like, like do you see that? So, so this is the way I think that we live the Christian life and we, we fight sin. The battle against sin is, is primarily a battle of seeing Jesus as more beautiful than the sin. This is the way a Scottish pastor, Thomas Chalmers, put it. I've read this before. He was a Scottish pastor back in the early 1800s. And he had a beautiful sermon. It was called the expulsive, not explosive, expulsive, it means it expels, the expulsive power of a new affection. And the whole sermon was how that Jesus, when he's our great affection, he expels lesser counterfeit affections from our heart. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is, I think seeing that and understanding that is, is one of the keys to the Christian life. And this is what... Tommy C. said, almost 200 years ago, the only way to dispossess an old affection, 
read into that some sinful, broken lust, temptation, whatever. The only way to dispossess an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. And by that he means the beauty of Jesus. In the gospel, do we so behold God as that we may love God? It is there and there only where God stands revealed as an object of confidence to sinners. The spirit of adoption is poured upon us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection, parentheses, Jesus, is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires and is the only way that deliverance is possible. So young man, how do you fight lust and internet pornography? Not by gritting your teeth and knowing that you should be a good little boy because you may be able to do that for a couple months, but you don't have it in you to string that together for a lifetime. How do you fight lust? You stop gazing at a lesser, broken, counterfeit beauty and you crowd it out by looking at Jesus. And how do you look at Jesus? You look at him in his word. You look at him in his community. You fill your life up with Jesus and his people and his word and you start to saturate yourself with Jesus and he becomes more friends that is not an abstract thing young men 20 years ago when I was a lieutenant at Fort Benning about ready to wreck my life that right there was a lifeline to my soul that truth fighting sin fighting lust Fighting temptation, not by gritting your teeth, but by looking to Jesus who's more beautiful than that image on a computer screen. How do you, how do you live the Christian life that way? Young woman, how do you fight this culture that constantly wants to objectify you and define you by your sexual ability to attract men or have babies or look like this or take the picture or be the cutest or fit into the bathing suit or whatever? How do you fight that broken counterfeit affection? You look to Jesus who alone is the one who defines your worth. How do you fight? How do you fight the temptation to be somebody that steps over other people on the corporate ladder and just makes life all about you and buying trinkets and just going away on recreation and stupid stuff and blowing your life? How do you fight that temptation, businessman, by surrounding your life with Jesus and his people and his word so that he becomes more beautiful than the counterfeit pleasures of this world? I've gone too long. Here's my point, friends. Do we see Jesus like Christian? I, I, here's what I need. I need to see Jesus afresh again today. I need to be reminded that Jesus is beautiful. He's, he's so worthy of my affection. He, he fills, like he fills, he, he satisfies every longing of my heart. Like he is better than this world. At his right hand, Psalm 16, are pleasures forevermore. I need to hear that over and over and over again. And friends, that's why we preach the gospel. Because when I behold Jesus in his work, I'm reminded of it and my heart is softened and it's stirred with affection to Jesus. So Christian, you need to hear, are you, are you seeing Jesus rightly? He's better. He's better than any counterfeit beauty. An unbeliever, I'm, I'm just appealing for you to consider the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. I know you can't do it on your own, so although I'm appealing to you to look to Jesus, I know that your only hope is God. And so I'm praying that God in his kindness will just make Jesus beautiful. Like he's, he's better. He's better than broken beauties. He's better. Oh, let's pray. Father, 
thank you for preserving this beautiful story. In fact, you said that wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told. Lord, the, the, the window pane of my heart so easily gets filled with dust and debris and the mud of this world. And I, I, I cannot clean it. In fact, I'm looking from the inside out. I can't reach outside and clean that window pane. I need you, Lord. I need you to wipe clean afresh the window pane of my heart so that I can look out and see Jesus in all his splendor, in all his beauty. Will read it this morning for, for our call to worship. One thing have I desired. And I see the beauty of the Lord. Lord, make Jesus more beautiful to me than pride and worldly definitions of success. Make Jesus more beautiful to me than any competing beauty. And do that for my friends, I pray. Do that for these people. Do that, I pray, Lord, for your glory and for the good of your people. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.